But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We'll continue reading the last two verses as well. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you have experienced that you meet a stranger for the first time and you immediately find out that this person is a believer and you hear their witness, you hear their confession in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can also share your faith in Christ with them. That's a wonderful experience, isn't it? It's encouraging. It's wonderful to hear people bless the Lord in that way. This morning, we are blessed to hear the profession of faith of seven young members of the congregation. That's encouraging for us. It's encouraging for the congregation also to hear that others wish to serve the Lord with them. It is, however, an exception. Most people don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Millions and millions of people in the world follow false gods and false religions. And in our Western society, in Western Europe and in America, churches are closing their doors weekly. And even among us, perhaps sometimes we have some doubts. Is it really true? Perhaps you're a young believer and you've always been supported by the faith of your parents and your friends But maybe you've asked yourself at one time, is it really true? Is all of this really true, what I've been taught? And then we might think to ourselves, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord Jesus would drop in one day and visit us for at least just one church service so that we could see him? Then then we would know for sure that he's alive. Then we we would see what what the disciples saw after he was raised from the dead. And we'd never have any more doubts ever again. Perhaps there is a little bit of Thomas in each one of us. But the message of Easter Sunday, congregation, calls us to get rid of all doubts. That's the theme of the sermon. The gospel of the resurrected Christ calls us to put aside all doubt. We'll consider the problem of unbelief, the confession of the converted and the calling of the believer. So when the disciples first heard that Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't believe it. 
In Luke's Gospel, for example, we're told that the disciples did not believe what Mary Magdalene and what the other women told them. They thought it was an idle tale, just a silly story made up by these women. But congregation, that changed in a very short period of time. By the time Pentecost occurred, so that's 50 days after the resurrection, the disciples had no more doubts. They were 100% convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter, for example, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, speaks in very convincing terms that Jesus is alive. He says to the Jews whom he's preaching to, This man, Jesus, who was crucified and killed, whom you crucified and killed, was raised up by God, for it was not possible for death to hold him. Well, how did that happen? How did the disciples turn from unbelief to a firm conviction? Well, something happened in those intervening 50 days that changed their mind. Jesus revealed himself to them. He showed himself. He proved that he was really alive. For example, on the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday, these two brothers who were traveling to Emmaus, they were completely distraught by the death of Jesus. They thought he was to be the Savior of Israel. And then they heard, and now he's, now he's dead, but, and some report that he's alive, and we don't know what to think anymore. But these two disciples were convinced by the Lord Jesus himself when he showed to them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer these things. And die and rise again. And then they recognized him. And later that same evening of the first Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to his disciples as they were gathered together in a locked room. And even though the door was locked, suddenly he was there. Peace be with you, he said. Well, that was a fairly common greeting between Jews in those days. But in the mouth of the risen Savior, that that greeting takes on added significance. Through his sacrifice, this this greeting has creating power. In John 1, or in John 14, verse 27, he told his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the peace of having your sins forgiven through his sacrifice. It's the peace of having a new relationship with your Father in heaven, your Creator. It's the peace of having the Holy Spirit dwell in you. It's the peace of sharing Christ's victory over death. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we too have conquered sin and death. And their life, the believer's life in communion with Christ, then it is a life that cannot die. Even though we still go through physical death, we live forever when we are in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the disciples heard this greeting from the Lord Jesus and they saw him, they were overjoyed. They believed the word of the resurrection which he had spoken to them much earlier. And then, as the head of the church, he commissioned them to go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations. Tell the world the message that Jesus died and rose again so that people might have life in his name. He said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So they had to go out into the world with the message that Christ is risen, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
And then, then he gave them power to do so. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't just commission them. He gave them the power to fulfill their commission. And the book of Acts proves that this was real. It worked. The Lord put his mouth in the mouth, mouths of his apostles by giving them the Holy Spirit. And he gave them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you will withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So whenever they proclaim the word of God, men and women, boys and girls everywhere, would either be freed from their sins by that word or condemned for their sins if they did not believe that word. The word, congregation, either liberates you or it leaves you in chains because it cuts both ways. And this word, the word of the apostles, the word of God, hasn't been lost, but it's been preserved for us in the scriptures. And the church today, too, has the task to proclaim this word, to spread the gospel. And the apostles, the apostles are the foundation of the church. And that's why John calls Thomas one of the twelve. The twelve are the representative body of the church. Even though Judas was no longer part of the twelve, he had already hanged himself after he betrayed Christ. And there were only 11 apostles at this moment. Later on, they would add another, Matthias. And yet John calls them the 12. And that's because the 12 represent the foundation of the church. Christ founded his church on the word and the testimony of the apostles. Paul writes about that in Ephesians 2, that the church is God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now if the apostles are the foundation of the church, which is fitted together in Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, it's extremely important that this foundation be pure and good and solid, in other words, it's of vital importance for the church that the, that the apostles are united in their testimony and in their witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Imagine if the apostles had been divided in their testimony. If some of the apostles had not believed, would we still be confident in the witness of what some of them have written? If one of them did not believe, would we not have reason to doubt the resurrection from the dead? And that's why it was so terrible that Thomas wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday evening. He should have been there. He would have been told by the other disciples that they were there. Mary told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what the Lord had said to her. Peter and John, too, they had seen the empty tomb and the linen cloth lying folded in the tomb and those two brothers from Emmaus, they had come back quickly and told the disciples, too, that we have seen the Lord. But Thomas was off by himself somewhere. One of the twelve was missing. There was a crack in the foundation and in the testimony of the church. And the Lord Jesus set out to repair that crack. So the entire episode recorded in the Gospel of John about Jesus and Thomas' interaction is not mainly about Thomas 
about doubting Thomas, but it concerns the united testimony of the church's witness concerning the resurrection. And note well, Thomas wasn't just racked by some slight doubts, but he did not believe. When the Lord Jesus later confronted him, the Lord said, do not be unbelieving, but believe. He wasn't just waffling a little bit. He didn't want to believe. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and I put my finger there and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe, he said. I will not. He didn't want to believe it. And we might wonder why, of course. What was it that he actually did not believe? After all, he had witnessed many miracles along with the other disciples. He knew that Jesus healed people. He even witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead. And calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. So he knew the power that Jesus had. And surely he trusted the other disciples. They were his best friends. Why wouldn't he believe their testimony? And for a whole week they were bombarding him with evidence that Jesus is alive. We have seen the Lord. But he did not want to accept their testimony. He could not bring himself to believe what the others believed. And so really in his pride and arrogance he set himself apart from them. I want to see it first. I want to be able to feel it and see it. And what was his struggle then? Why was he struggling so much harder than the other disciples? Well, we find that answer in in his confession. Thomas said, when he saw the Lord, he said, My Lord and my God. And that's, that's an astounding confession, congregation. We might wonder, why did Thomas confess way more than the other disciples? Way more than Mary, for example. You would think that after he had seen the Lord after an entire week, he would say, Jesus, I'm really sorry. I can see that you're alive. Please forgive me. But he confessed much more than that. When Mary saw the Lord, she called him Rabboni, my teacher. She thought, this is great. Now everything can go back to the way it was before Jesus' death, before the crucifixion. John and Peter, they too, when they saw the empty tomb, John records that they believed. But he adds that that he and the others did not really understand. John believed Jesus was alive, but he didn't really understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The brothers on the road to Emmaus, they didn't understand it either. They did not fully understand the implications. So, So what drove Thomas to this conclusion? To confess Jesus as Lord and God. Well, we have to put Thomas into his context. Thomas had a whole week to think about this. And it's not a stretch of the imagination to believe that he must have been thinking about this the whole time. Is Jesus really alive and can it be? The others must be wrong, but if they're not, what are the implications? What are the implications? And how could Thomas have reached this conclusion that Jesus is both Lord and God? Well, he must have gone over in his mind what he had heard Jesus saying about himself for three years. 
For example, in John 14, Jesus said, Believe in God, believe also in me. Elsewhere, he said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And obviously, this didn't make a lot of sense to the disciples at the time. But after the resurrection, these words should have provoked a much deeper reflection about who Jesus is and what he was claiming, who he was claiming to be. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a massive claim. You can't be an ordinary man and claim that. And Jesus also said that God has entrusted all judgment into the hands of his Son in order that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And elsewhere he said, before Abraham was, I am. And whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You could find all these statements in the Gospel of John. And he claims to have authority to lay down his life to take it up again. Congregation, those are, those are stupendous claims. But Thomas is now living on this side of the resurrection and, and he's thinking about these things. And there's a larger context too. Let me take one more example from Luke 5. Jesus was preaching to a packed house of listeners and four men came to the house and, and they let their paralyzed friend down through a hole in the roof in front of Jesus so that he could be healed. But when Jesus looks at him, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And, and the Jewish leaders, these Jewish theologians, they right away get mad and they say, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And of course they were right. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus didn't deny that he could forgive sins. In fact, he said the very opposite, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He turned to the paralyzed man and said, Rise, take up your bed and walk. Go home. And you can be sure that Thomas knew his Old Testament. He knew that David has written against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The implication being that when we sin, we sin first of all against God. We offend him. When we commit adultery or cheat on our taxes, we offend God the most. He is the most offended party. And so when we sin, we must seek his forgiveness. But here is Jesus forgiving the sins of this paralyzed man. Could Jesus really be God? So you see, Thomas' confession, my Lord and my God, that's not something that Thomas could have just pulled out of thin air the moment Jesus came into that room. That is the kind of a confession that takes knowledge and it takes some thinking. He must have thought about these things. And keep in mind that he was a Jewish believer of the Old Testament scriptures and that, like other Jews, he, he was monotheistic. Mono being one, theistic being referring to God. And like his fellow Jews, he believed in one God. Every Jewish child grew up learning to memorize the confession of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So to confess Jesus as Lord for a Jew, that was an astounding thing. An unheard of thing for a Jewish believer. That's one of the reasons why the Jews wanted Jesus dead. Because he claimed to be God. So there's no way Thomas made this confession without having thought about it thoroughly. 
maybe now we can see where his struggle came from. Because he realized, it seems he realized so much more than the other disciples what the implications of the resurrection are. And so he also struggled more deeply. He couldn't accept the resurrection because he understood the implications. If Jesus is alive, that means Jesus is God. And he just couldn't believe that. Or he didn't want to. Even though he saw and heard the evidence in the words of Jesus and the witness of his fellow disciples. He wanted more evidence. But that's the way it is with unbelief, isn't it? Because for an unbeliever, there's never enough evidence. The clear testimony of reliable witnesses isn't enough. And the clear testimony of the word isn't enough for unbelief. The unbelief is never satisfied with the standard that God sets for faith. But he inserts his own standards for believing. But when Jesus comes into the room where the disciples are, Thomas is confronted with the proof of where his thoughts are already taking him. He didn't want to believe Jesus' earlier words, but he had to believe when he was confronted by the Lord himself. And that's why Thomas made a complete 180-degree turn. That's why he confessed so much more than Mary and Peter and John. But at the same time, congregation, that does not excuse Thomas. And Jesus didn't excuse him either. He told him, do not be unbelieving, but believe. And yet the Lord was very gentle with Thomas. He also spoke words of peace to Thomas. The Lord came and sought him out, and he gave him the assurance of faith. He, he even met Thomas precisely where Thomas wanted to be met. He said, come, see my hands and place your hand in my side. And today he reaches out also to you and to me and to every unbeliever with his words of peace. And he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. The Lord speaks words of peace to us too. He reaches us out with the gospel and he calls us to believe. And he offers us the forgiveness of sins and he offers us his peace and peace with the Lord. The Lord sought out Thomas to, to assure him, but also to activate his faith and evoke a confession of faith from him. But he didn't just do this for Thomas. The Lord did this for the church. He was bringing unity to the testimony and the witness of the church. He was bringing harmony to the witness and the message of the apostles for the sake of the church, for our sake, because there had to be infallible proof of the peace and reconciliation that comes from the resurrection and the purpose and the unity of faith. And the Lord ensured that that would happen by bringing out this confession from Thomas. Because when Thomas makes that confession, my Lord and my God, the world becomes a different place for him, doesn't it? Nothing is ever the same if that is your confession. Because you understand the significance of who Jesus is and the significance of the resurrection and what that means for you, that it brings you peace with the Lord. And so Thomas went from obstinate unbelief to humble faith. The same faith described in John chapter 1, words which we read 
earlier this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the true light which gives light to everyone. And to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That, brothers and sisters, is the foundation upon which Thomas and the other apostles built the church. This unified witness. And now the proclamation of the gospel and of the risen Lord can go out into the world. And the church can call people to faith. And after Thomas uttered his profession, his confession, the Lord pronounced a blessing on all those who would come to faith through the proclamation and the testimony and the witness of Thomas and the other apostles. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's our calling too, congregation. The Lord calls us to faith. And he pronounces a blessing on all who believe, the testimony of his word. And the point is not that Thomas' faith was inferior to the faith of others because of the manner in which he came to faith. The Lord is simply making a comparison here. The disciples were blessed because they saw the, uh, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And today, congregation, we are even more blessed because we have the full light of the gospel that shines out of God's word. We understand that the substance and the truth of all the Old Testament symbols and ceremonies and prophecies are revealed to us in Christ. They're revealed to us in full because we also have the writings of the apostles. And so now we behold Christ in the gospel in the same way as if he were standing before us. And so we don't need to think to ourselves, wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus would drop in on a church service once? We have the full testimony of the apostles. And the Lord Jesus calls us blessed when we believe that testimony. An unbeliever would ask for more signs. But unbelief is never satisfied. We are blessed when we believe the united testimony of the apostles. And when we build on that foundation. The Apostle Peter himself echoed these sentiments in 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And congregation, that's also the purpose for which John wrote the gospel. Right? We read the last two verses of this chapter too. The signs that Christ performed and the words that he spoke were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John and the other apostles recorded the works of Jesus for the strengthening of our faith. And we need that, don't we? We need that. We're not always so sure of our own relationship with the Lord or where he is leading us. And perhaps you came to church this morning with some doubts or without full joy in your heart, full joy in the salvation of God. Perhaps sometimes you doubt God's care for you. Maybe sometimes you get angry or upset about something in your life or confused about something in your life.
Dear brothers and sisters, this morning, through the proclamation of the word, we have met Jesus again. Through the proclamation of the gospel, we have seen Jesus again this morning. And in the proclamation, we have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd. How then will you respond now that you have seen and heard him once again? How will we respond to the one who died for us and rose again so that we might have life in his name? How will you respond to the one who paid for your sins, who obtained peace for you and gives his peace to you? How blessed you are when you profess faith in his name. How blessed we are, congregation, brothers and sisters in the Lord, how blessed we are when the church is united in its confession. When we are united in our confession, then we can also faithfully fulfill the calling to go and make disciples of all nations. When we are united in our confession, then we are truly Christ's witnesses to the world. Blessed are you when you confess his name. Blessed are you when you say, my Lord and my God. Amen.